Hello, welcome to Sitcom Geeks. I'm Dave Cohen. And I'm James Carey. And we are at the BBC Television Studios because we have a very special guest with us, a, a producer, writer, multi-talented uh, comedy person, multifaceted uh, talent of Gareth Edwards. Hello, thank you for having me. Not at all. In a way, you're having us because we are in BBC Studios, which is very exciting. Mm. I mean, this is all fields the last time I was here. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Or, or empty space or something. I don't I don't. No, this was, I think this was actually the Panorama office or something oh, right. many okay. years ago yeah. when, Finally, when all of BBC room. was based at Television Centre. Right. It's and a, now we've come back and are renting a small corner of it. Yeah. yeah. yeah well, is, okay. And you are based at... The BBC four times is that correct? That's right, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What what um, do you have a kind of title or something? Uh, they, they I'm, I'm something? an executive producer, but I spend some of my time producing uh, TV and radio as well, actually. So I I, I enjoy uh, I enjoy making things, uh, and I'm not particularly uh, concerned to only make things in one particular medium. Uh, I like the process of producing. Uh, so yes, I've always tried to keep the radio going at the same time. Yeah, and you do have that love for radio as well, because a lot of producers just don't. That radio is not part of their makeup; they're not really into it. Whereas, I mean, so going back to the to the small Gareth Edwards, ten years old, <laughs> sitting on cross-legged on the floor um, of his home, were you listening to the radio? Were you watching TV? What were you listening to and watching? And uh, well. Uh, in terms of things that I listened to, there were two quite important things happened. Um, one was that my father had some old cassette tapes of The Goon Show. Oh. And so we used to listen mm. to those endlessly. And do all the voices. And do all the voices. Yeah. I can't really... I'm not great on The Goon voices. My father could, like many men of that generation. He uh, he would lapse into Goon right. impressions. And uh, Were they good or was he just having a game? They were, they were not bad at all. Okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, and... Uh, oh, we also enjoyed listening to Tom Lehrer, oh, who I find unbelievably hilarious. So there's something about the dry irony of, yeah. of Tom Lehrer. So we had a Tom Lehrer record as well. And then my big sister ended up with Monty Python Live at the Drury Lane, which uh, one of her friends gave her as a birthday present. Wow. And we listened to quite a lot of that. And then I remember quoting some of it to my mother, uh, <laughs> who was quite profoundly shocked I think yes. to hear a 10 year old <laughs> yeah. quoting you were literally the, 10 years some old things that time. were yeah. you know surprisingly filthy um, <laughs> did you know. and you didn't really know I didn't really know I just knew they sounded funny and um, when you said them there was an explosion of laughter so this is yes, a bit of a exactly cause it just seemed yeah and it was being mm. said in a funny way yeah. by yeah. Uh, a funny That's person with comedy timing yeah. so it must be funny yeah. I mean I remember the, the, the catchphrase when I was seven or eight years old at school was you know you dirty old man everybody mm. used to say you dirty old man and uh, we just assumed being seven and eight years old meant that he was and he looked dirty and yes. he was he was a, an ill-kempt man yes that, was meant. <laughs> yes, that so, could have been the catchphrase you yeah. ill-kempt man that sent you the dirty version yeah. uh, took off um, so yeah it's amazing how those those sort of albums and things they just mm. really go into your bones and you find yourself presumably do you find yourself even thinking them quoting them now to your children yes well I tried playing the goons to my children <laughs> And I was quite disappointed, I think. There was some, oh. some, I thought they'd really, yeah. really enjoy it. And they did like the funny voices, but they 
but but they weathered the years less well than okay. I thought they yeah. were. So they were disappointing to you as well. It wasn't like. Well, it was more it. that thing of because I'm not into the games. I can't wanting somebody to love yeah. something that you've loved, right. and, and instead it did slightly take some of the shine off it for me watching right. it play slightly. And then I thought, well, maybe we chose the wrong episodes, and perhaps <laughs> they'd have been. I remember a superb episode where they steal. Um, Dartmoor prison and set and go to sea in it and then they try and escape uh, and dig down and they and they strike the Atlantic and they go we're rich we're rich okay. and the prison sinks or you know those, those sorts of the surrealness of it yeah. um, or they they're, they're trying to break into the red fort so they steal the door of the red fort and take it back and try and pick the lock there right <laughs> and then and so the 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 sort of playfulness with yeah. with the rules of reality mm-hmm. which always struck me as really really lovely radio that you can you can play these little logic games and that's a kind of comedy that's always really appealed to me and lends itself slightly better to radio than to than to television mm-hmm. yeah. and it's quite sketchy as well because if you're playing with the rules of reality you've got less ability to play with the rules of personality and how yeah. they butt up against the constraints of an immovable reality, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and this is the podcast to talk in those ways on, because you're <laughs> yeah. thinking, well, this is getting very geeky, and you go, well, yeah. sitcom geeks, <laughs> yeah, here yeah. we are. Okay. Uh, can, please please do continue. Well, that's, uh, that, that interests me because... Um, I think about a lot of the shows that are on your CV and the people you work with, shows like Mitchell and and Mm. Webb, of course, and um, Bleak Expectations on the radio. Um, But then I'd always thought, and so what you just said, that the show um, Spaced on Channel 4... uh, seemed slightly uh, kind of one, one step removed from other others in the Gareth Edwards oeuvre, as it were. Uh, Whereas now, what you're saying about the surrealism and the weirdness and the, mm. that 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 kind of makes sense as well. I can see. I was I was going to ask how working on space compared to to uh, those sort of more conventional radio shows and how how that worked for you. But then it is quite a playful show, mm. space, and that yeah. you've got the the. I always think Edgar Wright is. Uh, a hugely important element in why that show was a success because the whole directing style itself is is almost like a, another character right and the playfulness with which the story is told is quite um self referential so you know it'll quote other especially it quotes horror films all yes. of the time and yes. there are certain horror tropes never that... get a single reference literally in all of those horror films. I don't I don't watch horror films never watch them never like them still found it funny but occasionally, and you get this with League of Gentlemen too, you just go, something weird just happened, they must be referencing a film that I've never seen. Oh, well, OK. Well, there'll be another long one. There'll be, hey, Star Wars reference, hooray! The, um, big, the biggest uh, thing that gets referred to in the shooting style of Spaced is the um, Evil Dead. So right. that there's a whole, then there's a whole shooting style in that, mm. that you'll, yeah. that once you see that, you go, oh, you know, there's lots of camera push-ins and, yeah. and, and whip pans and and an incredibly stylish way of shooting Mm. that and Edgar was unbelievably painstaking about how he put things together so he'd shoot a lot of stuff but he but every single shot would be used it was it was amazingly painstaking and and a a huge intellectual effort but anyway I slightly digress the point point is that that it 
it's playful in the way it represents the world and also the the world itself is not entirely a gritty real world they you know there's they go on these slightly surprising adventures um you know going to rescue the dog from the from the laboratory and um the the uh, it's a very a funny zombie fight. I'm suddenly yeah. remembering where he says that you can be Jabba the Hutt and she has no idea who it is. And she says, Jabba the Hutt, is that good? She's a, she's a princess. Yay! It's just like, yeah. no idea or something like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you spend quite a lot of time watching space going, what is this? You know what I mean? In a, in a good way, you're just thinking, I don't quite know. In the same way that the goons, and even to some extent, bleak expectations, it's like, it does, it, you just think, how far can this push mm. it? Um, and you know, and it, it gets because in one episode of Bleak Expectations, isn't there going down to the underworld as well? And oh those yeah, sorts of things. absolutely. And it gets very, you know, it gets very uh, ethereal, spiritual, metaphysical, however you wish to uh, wish to put it. <laughs> so those were quite big influences on you. Were they sort of you know the, the big old standard mainstream hits? You know, like watching the two Ronnies and those sorts of yeah. things too. Or? Uh, and I often reflect on the fact that for me, the two Ronnies was was something I preferred over Morecambe and Wise, which I think is probably a heretical thing to say. I think I'm with you. Comedy world. You're okay, you're safe. This is a safe space. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I don't know, once it's out there in the ether... Um, what? I, loved, I loved both of them, but, but yeah. for me, as someone who especially loves wordplay, yeah. which, again, is not really a very fashionable yeah. viewpoint, but I, I like the way the two Ronnies would allow reality to unravel a little bit. Yeah. And actually, Morecambe and Wise do that too. Mm. Um, but it's, it's all, all, always running along the, yeah. the, tw- the twin rails of their two personas yeah. that don't change yeah. in, in Morecambe I mean, if you, if you were on a desert, if you did a desert island comedy, hey, there's a format, mm. if you did a desert island comedy and you had to take the complete works of Morecambe and Wise or the complete works of the two Ronnies <laughs> I would pick Morecambe and uh, two Ronnies because mm. sketch for sketch is just funnier yeah, yeah I, I think they're bat- I think they've just got a higher batting yeah. average yeah but mm. you've just got knocking out the park ones in Morecambe and Wise mm. that you sort of wouldn't want to be without yeah right? so but yeah if you were mm. But it, but in a way, the whole arc of a Morecambe and Wise show is yeah. is more like a sitcom. It's in, a relationship. Yeah. Morecambe and Wise is about the relationship. Is it about the relationship? Whereas the two Ronnies is about is a sketch show with two brilliant sketch performers yeah. written by the greatest people writing comedy at that time. So the, you know, from that point of view, obviously, as a as a sketch show, it, yeah. it, it is phenomenal. But that the thing that touches people mm. that. that makes people love Morecambe and Wise in a way that maybe they don't have that same love type feeling is the kind of love between them isn't it the mm, sort yeah. of the brotherly relationship and whereas that. with two one is it was only ever really sort of affection and respect rather mm. than yeah there wasn't that quite you, deep well you connection. could tell the chemistry yeah. and you could yeah. tell the shared timing yeah. but yes you, you you were never invited to imagine there was more going on in it yeah. than that yeah. but there, there and, was, and it was fun yeah and there was and Ronnie Corbett could sit in his chair and do the joke sort of thing and, yeah. Yeah. and Ronnie Barker ne- ne- had nothing to do with yes. it yeah. and didn't need to yes. and he didn't feel oh it's weird he's doing a thing on his yeah. own and he felt yeah. that these were two and then they both did their own sitcoms you know, they yeah. were, you know two, there was Sorry and obviously there was yeah. Open All yeah. Hours and um, 
Uh, porridge. Porridge, yeah. of course, uh, which is sort of top three for me. So yeah. at what point um, was uh, the 10-year-old Gareth enjoying all these comedies? And at what point was this like, oh, I could, I could do that? Oh, well, not for ages, actually. Um, but I just want to rewind a little bit, because while we've been talking, I've been thinking that puts across one side of what I love about comedy. Right. But there is another thread going on. And I was thinking, well, if we if we were about to say what sitcoms did you enjoy yeah. watching when you were younger? And certainly, you know, things like Dad's Army was a favourite. Um, but then I remember I used to watch MASH a lot. Oh. And that's very different. That's a very real well you know it's it's still a comedy but it's set in a very real place where some awful things are happening Mm. and the other part of my sort of comedy dna is that i love the emotional power Mm. that comedy can have and the fact that it you can laugh but you can also connect with real feelings Mm. not just of uh, funniness, but uh, but also of loss or mm. or despair or uh, that that yeah. comedy is a lovely way to have fun, but it's also a way into saying something more profound about human nature yeah. that you couldn't really say in any other way. Almost, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Because Mash is, has that air of what the heck are we yeah. doing here? Yeah, mm. and it, and it's there in the beautiful opening song as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, of suicide is painless. Yeah. Mm. Uh, there's something incredibly touched through yeah. with grief of mm. the whole the whole thing yeah. and I think that's very important to me and my, my perspective of, of comedy as well that I love doing the jokes and the silly old mm. puns but if there is a way of suddenly flipping that over into a general mm. sense of uh, human frailty yeah, yeah. <laughs> then whoa, yeah. you know lead me to it that's, to races, that's what yeah. I think yeah yeah mm. So, but yes, then you were saying at what point did I go from being a consumer of comedy to thinking, well, actually, I could make this. Uh, There's a few moments which seem key looking back on it. I remember writing a sketch for for a sort of school sketch show when I was probably about 12 or 13, which was incredibly two Ronnies, and it was about an undertaker who goes around trying to start fights between people to drum up business. Right. And then it kind of gets them to start a duel. Yeah. And um, and then they keep saying, well, you know, actually it's a terrible fuss about nothing. And the undertaker's going, well, no, no, because don't forget, he did yeah. call... Yeah, anyway, and then yeah. in the end they both turn on the undertaker and stab yeah. him with the words, don't be so sordid, right. which, right. Was, which I thought passed for a punchline at the time. <laughs> and maybe... Still do. Anyway, um, so then... Well, it was just something, because when most, most people were 12, they were just going to copy down a sketch from Two Ronnies rather than actually do one that's yeah. like it. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, that's kind of... So that's all Apart from Lucy and Young, who wrote an entire script of Frasier, aged 11. Yes, wow. that's true. A spec script <laughs> yeah, of Frasier, yeah. 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 But, uh, but there was, we go. That was, He's now uh, writing specs on it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yes, indeed. Yes, it was, was uh, annoyingly hilarious, yeah. <laughs> yeah. considering yeah. that he was only 11 that's years old. That's very impressive. Yeah. Mm. So, um, um, so, yeah, and then one or two other kind of school sketch shows, mm. which were a mixture of things that we copied out of 
Peter Cook and Dudley Moore yeah. all wrote ourselves. And I discovered the amazing power of the comic song to get more laughs than it deserved. We need to fill for seven minutes. What are we going to do? <laughs> yeah. So then we did this comedy version of the 12 days of Christmas, but involving breaking 12 different school rules. Oh, okay. And then, of course, you you only have to write 12 jokes because you get to say several of them, <laughs> you <Yes>. know, <laughs> a really large number of times. Anyway, and I just thought, oh, that's mm, worth bearing in mind. Yes, that's right. Anyway, it's then I went kind off. of glitch in the Matrix. In the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I got more into serious acting, and I did lots of serious acting and didn't do very much writing for a while when I was... Uh, as an undergraduate uh, then I started doing a postgraduate degree and tried directing and got into writing again and I set up a sort of writing collective which was almost a theatre company I suppose with um, uh, several people including Ben Miller and David Farr who David the guy that did the adaptation of the Night Watchman, and we wrote various stupid things together, uh, including um, a spoof Shakespearean play called Norman Thane of Spain, <laughs> <laughs> which uh, which still makes me laugh. That's uh, great. Well, that's good. Yeah. Uh, there was a character in it called Old Moped, which <laughs> was a good name. Anyway, so we this we did that anyway. Uh, but then I thought I needed to get a job. I sort of gave up on the postgraduate thing because it turned out to be hard work and a bit boring um, well I just picked a subject that was much much too big right. and realised that it was a life's work rather than a PhD yeah, right. so what was I, the subject? it was the effect of the English Civil War on people's understanding of the nature of language mm-hmm. well, that sounds okay. quite specific to me actually it, well, no well that was my hope <laughs> but yeah, no yeah, it turns yeah. out first yes. of all you'd need to do a yeah. lot more history than it opened several you. cans of worms and it yeah. opened several cans of worms but it's actually you know I often think about it now because the civil war was a time when there were a lot of people fighting for what truth was yeah. and how you mm-hmm. got truth across yeah. and who, what you could print and what you couldn't print and trying to argue people sorry trying to convince people to fight to the death for your particular cause yeah mm. And actually, it seems not unlike the situation we're in now, to the extent that, that people were very distrustful of... Some people were very distrustful of rhetoric, some people were very distrustful of language and how you could make it mean things where people couldn't... Yeah, I f- um, I'm sorry, yeah. I failed to see the relevance to today. Yeah, no, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> rhetoric means back. rhetoric. Yeah. Yeah. Inventing <laughs> words and then defining their meaning, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, yeah. we, we left that... That's yeah. for no, That's, that's luckily, ancient history now. Luckily grown out of that. Yes, that's right. <laughs> All the people who uh, did that were killed in the war. Yeah, yeah. yeah we moved on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, get a job. But then, yeah, yeah, so I thought I needed to get a job, and I thought I would like to work in television. And I initially thought I ought to go and make arts programmes um, and interesting documentaries about the sort of thing I'd tried doing my postgrad thesis on. And then I had this sort of epiphany where I thought, well, perhaps really I ought to try and make the sorts of programmes that I enjoy watching <laughs> rather than the sorts of programmes I feel I ought to watch. Yeah, yeah. which is a surprisingly few producers um, would say that, actually, who would have that. And, um, that, that I, I always think, well, if, you're not, if, if, if it's not something you want to watch, mm. then what's the, you know, how much can you... 
how 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 much passion and uh, yeah. commitment can you give to this? Well, yes, and that opens up a whole big can of worms about <coughs> about notes and yeah. how and how one interacts with a script yeah. as you're developing it yeah. as well. I think because it ultimately, yeah, one of my favourite comedy rules, and you might be able to remember the name of the character here, but it, well, there's an episode of Father Ted where they have a a particularly unpleasant priest staying with them who plays incredibly loud garage music late at night. Right. Does this ring a bell? I've yeah. forgotten the character's name. name but I wish I could remember it for the yeah. purposes of sounding well-informed mm. for this podcast. Uh, but he he has this phrase where he goes, well, I've had my fun and that's all that matters. <laughs> and I often think that is quite a useful thing to apply to the process that we're all engaged in. Mm. That if if you aren't enjoying the joke that you're doing, yeah. Yeah. you really can't be expecting anybody else to do it. And if you diverge from the path of doing yeah. stuff that you find gratifying, yeah. uh, you won't know when you've succeeded or not. Yeah. So, and the, even worse, because failure is so incredibly likely, you won't know if you failed on yeah. your own terms or somebody else's. Yes, exactly. That's you one thing. That, to... That's a bit of a refrain on this podcast yep. in recent episodes is you know stick to your idea you've got to yeah. find it funny yeah. because th- because there's nothing worse than being at a read through and it goes okay but ultimately the show is turned down and you think well that's you've turned down a show that I didn't want to do you turned down you, that's not even yeah. the show I wanted so given that you know success is the outlier unfortunately from a writing point yeah. of view yeah. you have to you have to find it funny yourself and I think lots of people who may be listening to the show are thinking, how can I get a script? How can I get a show on television? Yeah. It's sort of like, well, that's that's one question, but another question is, what show do you want to watch on television? Yeah. Can you write that? And it's very easy to forget that, isn't it? Yeah. And so you you, you realise, well, let's make some shows that I might like. Yeah. And um, so did you, how did you, what, what happened then? Oh, well, I, um, while trying to get a, so I then thought I, I should try and get a job doing comedy and in the meantime I did some volunteering in a local radio station and I did some stand-up tryout spots and I carried on doing a bit of writing and then there in the paper was an ad for radio light entertainment trainee producer and it was as if there was a little <laughs> you had the halo around it oh, and the angels oh, singing yeah. this is what you should be doing and mm-hmm. I think that was in 1991 um, right, right. And I applied for it, and I was, looking back on it, I was surprisingly ruthless about ensuring that I got as far as I possibly could in the selection process for that. So I, and this is, I don't know if this is useful advice, but I listened to pretty much every radio program I could, and I wrote little essays about what I thought about each of them, and what was good and what was bad, and I trailed or went to as many radio programs as I could and obviously I was already doing the volunteering in mm. the mm. GWR in Bristol um, so it was like a little kind of uh, military campaign and and you're uh, now looking yeah. back thinking who was that guy yeah yeah well, I had a little I had a little card index full yeah. of yeah, all you know, people in radio who I ought to yeah. <laughs> know well, who they were it, and everything is terrifying. Yeah, it, it's sort of um, it, it's the most kind of uh, obvious thing to say, really. But in fact, it's a kind of thing that I, I sort of learned maybe 
25, 30 years too late, but actually, yeah, you know, prepare. If you're going to do yeah. something, then you prepare for it. And you don't know if it's going to happen or not, but at least you could say, if you hadn't got the job, you could say, well, actually, there wasn't any more, or whatever I didn't, whatever reason I didn't get that job, it, it wasn't because I sat on my backside all day yeah. <laughs> dreaming about how I might get the job, you know, I did, yeah. I, research, I did it, you know, that's exactly the correct research to yeah. do, isn't it? Yeah, it may not be British. Job. Do you yeah. <laughs> practice as yeah. to Flanders and Swansea, yeah. isn't it? The Australians, yeah. they practice beforehand, yeah. which ruins the fun. Oh, yeah. Right? yeah. Um, so, yeah. you know, you, I mean, are, you are allowed to research yeah. and practice. I mean, and nobody likes a SWAT, it's true, but, you know, the fact is that's the... the, the, the I yeah, happen yeah. To, to like you, so that that disproves that anyway. But, uh, <laughs> you know that, was funny. <laughs> but um, that yeah. you know, be a SWAT is yeah. definitely the, uh, the, the yeah. What I yeah, and, and it, in a way, I I sort of missed that organised me that really knew what the hell I was talking about. <laughs> in great detail for a period of about six months while that information was still current. <laughs> so I take it you got the job? Uh, yes, so I did, yeah, yeah I, got the, I got, got the job. And they were, I think they took on eight of us at once, Whoa. which was amazing. Yeah. And I wish they still did things yeah. like that. Who, who actually, were your alumni? Um, sure some so they were... Let me see if um, I can guess. Oh, okay. Right, go for it. It was uh, 1991. That yeah. would already so Armando would already be there. That's right. Phil Clark would have been there and nope. left. Phil, uh, Phil was one of that gang. Uh, a Bill. Phil. Phil. Clark. Phil was oh, really? one of. Oh right. Oh, yeah. of, oh actually, yes, because it's uh, it Colin Swash. Colin Swash was one. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, any women? This yes. is the most niche panel game <laughs> I've ever come across. Right, okay. Who, who uh, got the job okay, with Gareth Edwards not, uh, as a trainee uh, producer at BBC Radio yes, Comedy? Okay, it's a bit early for Claire Jones, I think, probably. Yes, it was uh, early yeah. for Claire Jones. Um, I, I don't, is this staying in the show? <laughs> I think it's going to have to. No, no, no. I think it's going to um, have to. Uh, Caroline Leddy, yeah. Louise Coates. Oh, right. Yeah, um, so Caroline Leddy went on to be head of Channel, yeah. Channel 4 Comedy, as, as did uh, Phil Clark, actually, yeah. as well. So, it's a kind of a, a good job. Yeah, no, it was. A, to, it was. A, yeah. It was quite. Richard Wilson was in there. Oh right, okay. It was not to be confused with Richard Wilson. Yeah. Yes, different. Uh, Richard yeah, Wilson. Wilson. Um, I probably so, missed him. Anyway, it was. Yeah. A, oh, John Naismith. Yeah. So oh, it was. Okay. A, it was a pretty good. Yeah. Cross section of of people who then yeah. did go on to carry yeah. on doing jokes. Yeah. yeah. So that was the beginning of a. Of a career trajectory that's continued yeah. to be at yeah. BBC based pretty much since then. Not completely, no. I, so I did of that course. for four or five years, um, and one of the shows that I did was a sketch comedy of um, called The Airport, oh, which was yeah. um, I to talk to you about that. Uh, black comedians including Luella Gideon and Felix Dexter um, Curtis and yeah I think yeah Curtis and um, Roger Griffiths was in it I think mm. anyway it was uh, and it was done at Stratford East we did two series of it and um, Humphrey Barclay listened to it and he was setting up an LWC comedy uh, department at the time and so he asked me if I wanted to come and work for him, which was lovely. Um, so I went and worked for Humphrey at London Weekend for three years. It was a funny time, though. That was when we did Spaced, and Spaced right. was the biggest, was was our 
biggest success while mm. I was there. What we were trying to do was make London Weekend a fashionable brand in comedy again. And I often think we almost succeeded and if you look at our development slate at that time right. we, we were developing projects with Sam and Jesse right um, we were developing projects we, we, I was in talks with David and Rob obviously we were doing space mm. we um, had a meeting we had several meetings with Steve Delaney who's Count Master Strong mm. um, and I pitched a thing by him to Channel 4 it you know it was quite it was, uh, and several other people who then you know and I guess everyone at that stage was probably approaching the same people but it was a pretty good list and the ideas that we had were were good I think Mm. but it was it was probably not the right time to be wading into that territory and I think it was roughly at that point that Granada basically bought up all of the different ITV companies Mm. so LWT sort of ceased to exist Mm. and uh they they said would you would you like to stay and we can offer you a guest we can offer you a desk in the corner of the blind date office and that's all <laughs> do you know do you know what yeah. <laughs> might, yeah, that's right yeah. might not yeah yeah um so then at that point uh john plowman said oh you should come back to the bbc so i did so and i have been are. here ever yeah. since then yeah. but it's it. interesting the um so lwt and maybe this is a bit of a wider conversation, but so the, the problem with that, if Albert, when you're trying to establish a comedy brand or like a comedy, being you know, trusted with comedy, especially presumably for ITV, as it were, an ITV audience as well. I know you were putting stuff on Channel Four as well, but but because of the riskiness of comedy, um, you know, in a way, it's like, I mean, I don't think ITV has quite recovered since, you know, since mm. sort of since the change of the regions was producing, you know, spitting image and all those sorts of things. Um, because comedy just takes time to get going, they just can't, don't ever quite feel that they can get there. I mean, we've talked to Saskia about this, and yeah. we had an intervention, it was basically an intervention, but I don't quite know who for. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, so you'd say, were you, did, did you feel that, you know, even even then on ITV, the mainstream comedy, which is what we have particular affection for on the, on the podcast, that that was always going to be a harder sell? Do you think? Well... I don't know. I I think at the time my interests were less mainstream comedy right. than they mm. are now. Uh, and we had a very experienced producer called Mark Robson who was doing stuff that was mainstream mm. ITV. So I sort of took it that my brief was more to yeah. to sweep up the kind of exciting mm. new offbeat people. Yes. Angry young men and, and stuff. And pitch them into Channel 4 and the BBC and uh, uh, and you know possibly ITV mm. as well I think ITV I wonder if ITV2 was a thing then. no no okay can't have been then um, but we did do a thing called Stuff the Week which was mm. which ran for 10 had a pilot and then 10 episodes really on late night ITV Powell and, and that was yeah it was Paul Powell Dan, Dan Gaster who were known as Curry Goes at the time that's right yeah um and that was, I thought, quite a good format, which was essentially trying to capture the fun of a writer's room mm. within mm. a TV programme, or you know, capture the fun of a weekending writer's yeah. meeting, perhaps, because mm. it was all about, oh, what have you Probably. seen in the papers? Yeah. Yeah. And it was essentially quite a lot of it was taking the piss out of 
news reporting, yeah. which actually would probably be quite a good thing to do now. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, you, you said it was kind of the wrong time, really, but it was kind of a, a little bit ahead of its time, really, wasn't it? And, I mean, the, the airport was, certainly for Radio 4, was, was quite mm. a, um, was, was quite a, dare I say, new departure yeah. for uh, BBC. Oh, nice. <laughs> oh, sorry about Very that. Very good. Um, but it was... Um, I'd like to make a town like this kind yes. of noise. <laughs> yeah. um, but in terms of um, attempts to, you know, kind of get more kind of performers from ethnic minorities into the, yeah. into radio and TV, um, and um, it's kind of never quite... There are always sort of attempts, and they're like one-off attempts. And yeah, the, 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 I think the problem is that... As, uh, is as you say, they're one-off attempts, and and you need more throughput, and you need you know there should just be more programs, and and I think also the lack of diversity in television, which is something that is finally beginning to improve slightly. Well, uh, it is a is a problem that really could have been addressed more. You know, twenty-five you, years ago, you were sort of addressing ago. it at the time, really. Because I was having a go, but because yeah. Humphrey was responsible for Desmond's, wasn't he? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, and so he was obviously yeah. trying to he he was trying to be the the bridge between the you know, yeah the mainstream and, and, and Desmond's and, was you know really very successful and it ran mm. for a, a very long time. And we pitched funny. a we pitched a show. Um, the first thing that I made at London Weekend was a pilot with a sketch group called The Posse which we mm. pitched to Channel 4 but they didn't go for it unfortunately mm-hmm. um, but yeah they, it, it feels as though The Real McCoy was a really important show because it it sort of almost happened the wrong way around by normal television standards there was some money and there was a slot and somebody said to a producer, please put something in this slot. Yes, please assemble something yeah. and insert here. <clears throat> and yeah. then yeah. that meant that the show got made and it had a big throughput of ideas. Now, I didn't work on The Real McCoy, so I may be misrepresenting it, mm. but my impression is that the a situation was created where black comedy writer-performers would get some stuff on uh, and then that happened and if it had kept on I mean I think it should have just kept on running indefinitely and that way you would pe- build up mm. more experience and, and I think that's a big issue just generally in terms of um, going back to talking about the two Ronnies the beauty of the two Ronnies is they made quite a lot of episodes mm. over a very long time yeah, and exactly. this is where you got John Sullivan David yeah. Renwick Andrew Marshall and the guys who wrote Sorry. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, I want to say Vincent. Um, and, you know, yeah. whereas now, sketch shows on BBC, whether it was Armstrong or Miller, we've now got Tracy Ullman a, mm. a, a bit. Um, but, boy, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's, not, it's not the throughput that you... No, that's right. On yeah. BBC One and BBC Two. So if you're starting out as a comedy writer now, it's just like, well, it's kind of BBC One, half-hour mm. mainstream, yeah. or nothing. Yeah, I think it's, just, I think it's a challenge. Um, and that was, in a sense, the job that you did was that you know the culture of training um, was the, the, the BBC paid 
to train people. I yeah. Know, and you, the, yeah. The, the training was actually um, you were working while you were yeah. training. So yeah, you, exactly. you know, and, and as soon as you got a job as a radio producer, you were you were doing presumably you were doing the the various panel shows yeah, that were right. already mm. there, and then yeah, uh, pitching your own ideas at yeah, the same exactly. time. It was it was an amazingly privileged position, really, because mm. we were all within a few months were all making programmes and having them broadcast and mm. and actually very largely unsupervised in a way that I think wouldn't happen now. Mm. Um, well, I know it wouldn't happen now. Um, yes, it speaks to uh, executive you know, yeah, One of my jobs yes. is to, is make, to sure make sure now. that it doesn't happen now. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, you know, we would go around, uh, you know, I'd make week ending and I'd edit it and I'd... Get, mm. this is what shall be in the programme and I'd take it to continuity and they'd put it on air and that was that was all that happened, nobody else yeah. listened to it before it went out and I was, I don't know 26 or something yeah. um, News quiz I know now has, goes through several yeah. several layers of BBC management and, and legal departments before it actually goes out yeah. and that's you know, in a, whatever it is a 16 yeah. hour period yeah. between it being um, yeah, finished yeah. the uh, edited and about to go out so it's pretty yes. pretty sharp turn yeah no, and people, you know, I know that yeah. people are very very light touch about mm-hmm. it um, so I don't think it's there isn't a sort of dead hand of management constraining yeah, yeah. programs mm-hmm. and you know I, as I say I, I'm someone that often will watch a program before it goes out mm-hmm. and um, it's just a question of saying if there's going to be a joke about X I'd a, quite like to know about it so yeah. that when people start to say why did you do that I, I now know the content it's not so yeah. much an editorial you can't do that because we'll get into trouble it's yeah. like we're, we're happy with a certain level of trouble I would just like yeah, to I know, yeah, the whole I, thing I think BBC lawyers have always in my experience been incredibly gung-ho mm. in a way where you know they you go, well, I'd quite like to say this, and they say, Yes, you absolutely yeah. should. And if yeah, they want to come true. and have a go, <laughs> we're ready. Yeah, yeah, hold yeah. my coat. Sort yeah. of thing. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's uh, always yeah. quite encouraging. That yeah, you can that's go, true, oh, yeah. that's very good. Yeah. Um, so they're there, they are there to support. But I think what's, what's tricky, an odd side effect of that is that if you know that somebody else is going to listen to or watch what you've done mm. before it goes out there's a danger that you take less responsibility for it yourself. So you go, yeah. well, I'll tell you what, I'll put that in and the exec might not like it. But And if they don't, if they say don't do that, then we'll take it out. But then immediately you've yeah. taken yeah. your own sense of responsibility off Outsourced that it. program. Yeah. And we used to answer our own complaint letters, not our own complaint letters. <laughs> 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 this program I made is appalling. Well, um, we you know, we have to answer letters about our about programmes we'd made. Yeah, and I remember vividly from that BBC radio time, I'd done a sketch where it it was necessary to have a the the sound of a of an abusive relationship. So, you know, mm. a drunk husband mm. shouting at frightened yeah. wife. And it, it was quite a serious sketch. I think mm. it was probably about Cutbacks in in um, in social services or right. something. I'm laughing already. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, I'll just and, pick you up off the floor. Yes. Yeah, and very yeah, with 
in a spur of the moment decision, the actor who was playing the drunken husband, mm. we said, oh, oh, make him Scottish. And somebody wrote in and said, that's a terrible stereotype. Why are you perpetuating this idea of drunken Scottish uh, men? And, and I didn't have an answer. We'd made a stupid, stereotypical mm. choice. So, I, so in my reply, I said, I, I regret doing that. You're right, it was, it was yeah. stereotyping. And that was incredibly useful yeah, to yeah. actually engage with that. Yeah, Whereas yeah. I think now someone would say, you know, we try to make sure programmes... Uh, yeah. appeal to a broad section of the uh, yeah. and, you know maybe listen to something else yeah and you can tell a whitewash answer when you get one but actually yeah, yeah. also that would have taken the wind completely out of a complaint yeah. and sales by basically yeah. the act of repentance which is yeah. basically yeah. what well, you yeah, just there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong yeah. with that yeah, yeah. Uh, and then I remember it also got into a long argument on another one of our rather too serious weekending sketches where, where something awful happened and someone had written in saying, oh, you know, I can't believe you chose to make a joke out of this. Would that have happened in the days of the great satirists like Jonathan Swift? <laughs> to which I replied, yes, it definitely would. That was the main thing he did. Yeah. To which the respondent then said, yes, that's a fair point. <laughs> Nevertheless, I didn't think the sketch was very funny. Yeah. To which I then replied, well, that's a fair point. <laughs> and I felt we all came out of it quite well. Just going, this, this is, this is all know. happening, like, like handwritten uh, letter. Yeah, yeah. This is all pre-Twitter. Telegram. Things, things are much yeah. better now, obviously. <laughs> things are much yeah. better now where we scream at each other and don't yeah. give an inch. Yeah. Um, in terms of... So uh, people listening to this podcast, as we sort of... Um, before we get hoofed out of this room, they may be thinking, um, how does a script that they write possibly end up anywhere near where you might pull it off a pile um, because I mean you obviously you, you develop a little bit of comedy as well as produce and executive yeah. produce it um, but how how does that you know so how, how might that work but also when you're when you're reading a script what makes you what, what gives you joy and what makes you sad well the thing that makes me sad is that I don't have time to read anything like as many scripts as I used to mm. and as I would like to so you know a good thing about those radio days were we would just be given you know eight scripts a week or something mm. to, to read through and respond to um, and everything got read so yeah. got sent in and I don't think that's the case mm. so much anymore I'd aspire to do that but I can't um, there's you know, we have development producers mm. and yeah. and they're very much in the business of reading scripts that they get sent. Yeah. Um, and obviously we try and see shows as well. So you go and see live stuff? Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, you, and we, we recently did an episode on, on making your own comedy, as it were, in terms of, you know, YouTube and yeah. um, funny podcasts or whatever. I think if you can do that, that's terrific. Yeah. Uh, not everyone who's a great writer is necessarily also going to be a great producer of YouTube videos yes, or director yeah. of YouTube yeah. videos. But you can also but, sense something in yeah. that kind of, you know... Well, some, we're all... I mean, you know, the main thing that we're all looking for is to have something to laugh at. And if, you know, funnily enough, even a, a very funny covering email yeah. will, go, will get your attention. You just kind of go, oh, God, it's someone else asking me to read this. Oh, yeah, that's very funny the way you, you yeah. phrased that. Because, I mean, ultimate, ultimately, this is perhaps, yeah, a bit of key advice here, that if you are trying to pitch an idea for a funny programme, please, 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 can that pitch itself be funny? 
because if you're if you're trying to sell what you're doing as being yeah purveying laughter yeah the way in which you try to pitch it has to be entertaining and engaging in itself yeah and, and so I particularly I don't really like treatments very much so I'd much rather read a scene or you know or, or a, a whole script or something because you'll then get a sense of what the chemistry is like you know if someone says I've got a great idea for a sitcom and it's set in a submarine yeah well that's that's just what the situation is that yeah. doesn't tell me anything even whatsoever actually, about whether it would be funny even here are the characters yeah. um, so here's the situation here are the characters here are some, here are some plots and there's never, and that's sort of okay, but equally, it still feels like you're being handed a pile yeah. of ingredients yeah. and being invited to yeah. imagine, yeah. imagine how they what would, that would be like. Imagine how delicious that I think will that's be. That's a very good analogy, and and that's why if if you want if you want to do that, the character description should only be you know five six lines, and it should be funny to read. Mm-hmm. You know, Tim is the sort of person that thinks he's X, but in reality yeah. he's Y, and the only thing that makes him good is when he happens to be standing next to his friend Bob. Yeah. You know, that you, it needs to be pithy, and it needs yeah. to be playful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we, as you say, we're going to get kicked out of this room in a minute, but I thought I'd tell you what my rule about notes is. Please. Because I oh. think quite a lot yeah. about notes. <laughs> oh, great, yes, let's not miss out on that. Which is... Uh, as a, it ties into what we were saying a little bit earlier about it, you have to have your fun, yeah. Um, and the only, the only, ultimately, the person you have to please with your comedy writing is first and foremost you, and then everyone else is a bonus. Uh, there's, there's a fantastic wreath lecture, I think it is, by Grayson Perry about creativity, uh, where he talks about. Getting on the bus. Didn't either of you heard this? No, it's great. Uh, he he oh, says when people that. leave art school, um, which really applies to the beginning of any creative endeavour, uh, they it's like they go to the bus station and they get on a bus, which is their creative direction, and the creative direction bus travels along a bit, and they go, oh, okay, well, I've been on this for a while I think I'll get off and look around and they get off and they look around and they see several other artists and they go oh that's awkward I really wanted to be original and look there's several (laughs) other people here and so they go back to the bus station they get on a different bus and they travel along get off look around notice some other people there as well try it three or four more times eventually give up trying to think of anything original and what he says is stay on the bus (laughs) Keep going in your creative direction. Right. Yeah. Keep going. And so, anyway, that's not that isn't my rule about notes. But I think that's a rather beautiful a good, thought yeah. good, about uh, about the creative process. Up, yeah. That actually you have to keep doing it and do it with a certain amount of single-minded, um, yeah, narrowness. Mm. Suddenly tries to apply that to my own career. <laughs> Realizes I have not succeeded. We haven't anyway. even come to your writing uh, oh, skills and things. Well, uh, but the, yes. But you would have had no, in a way. I haven't done. I mean, I haven't done enough of that. I haven't stayed on the bus because I got on the making programs bus, yeah. and you know, you every are, now and I get and I get on the writing bicycle and. There's two rules about notes. The first, the first rule as a writer that you have to do is you have to listen to all of the notes that you were given 
and consider them carefully because they might have truth. (laughs) The second rule about notes is that you absolutely must not try to respond to the notes that in your heart feel wrong. Yeah. Because if you're trying to write for what somebody else has said the programme ought to be rather than what you in your heart feel the programme ought to be, you'll never know whether you've got it right or not. You'll be writing to somebody else's vision. And obviously programme making is an unbelievably collaborative process. I I don't know anything more collaborative. Uh, And so a lot of the time you're trying to find common ground and go, okay the producer has said oh I don't like the fact that Bob's wearing a cap, could he instead be wearing a hat uh, That it's your duty to try and think what that might, yeah. what that note might really be about yeah. if, you don't, if you don't agree that he should be wearing a hat yeah, yeah. just ask yourself well why is that question being asked and maybe the real answer is that he should be wearing neither a cap or a hat, but yeah. something there's something wrong with the situation as yeah. it is because yeah. the producer has brought it up. Yeah, mm. and also uh, it's like, oh, he's not, but he's not a hat guy; he's a cap guy. And the produ- and to which the answer the producer is saying, oh, he, in my head, he's a hat guy. Mm. Yeah, and he goes, yeah. oh, well, I've yeah, and this line would suggest he's a hat guy, not a cap mm. guy. Yes, exactly. And so, That's therefore, just use yeah. that as a way in rather than just sort of get furious. He should wear a cap, of course, yeah. more on it's a, yeah. it, it is a dilemma, though, sometimes, isn't it? That, that in fact, you know, that, that somebody can have a, a view on, on a script and, you know, be that view be right, and your, your view, which is also right, is at odds, because we're not talking about creating a, a, a nuts and bolts thing for an assembly line yes. that has to be the same every time. We're talking about some... some weird creative thing that's going to succeed if it succeeds for it'll succeed for a reason that you hadn't even realized in the time that you were doing it and so uh, so it's not an exact yes. thing yes. is it really so it's it's kind of i suppose you're you're basically saying think about your uh, stay on the bus stay on the bus, on the bus. Yeah. yeah keep to your instincts i suppose yeah. Yeah. yeah that's it you have to you have to trust what you think is funny because that's ultimately the only thing that you can mm. measure your su- success against yeah yeah um and yeah that's very helpful mm. um we've we, got we've got about sort of two minutes left in which we could talk about um upstart crow which oh, you produce and uh, uh artists which was a great radio oh, well, uh, for remembering artists which uh, i was fond of that Upstart, so Upstart Crow feels to me like people that this it's the third series, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it feels like the third series, which has just uh, been going out. It feels like now people just have really accepted that this is a new show that's here to yeah. stay. It feels like there was. God, the, I hope so. Well, series one <laughs> yeah. was a well, it's Shakespeare's anniversary. Yeah, yeah. That's all fine. Series two was oh, is this still a thing? <laughs> yeah, and yeah. series three is hooray, Upstart Crow. Excellent. And isn't it incredible that it requires? An unimpeachable comedy writer yeah. with some unimpeachable acting talent uh, on a subject matter that's quintessentially British about a great British hero. And even then it takes three series yeah. but even, for people yeah. to suddenly just go, hooray, jokes mm. in, a, in a studio setting, all that kind of stuff. Does that, does that match your experience of it? Or? Yeah, I think it probably does. It's, it, I think there's a, 
there's a bit of prejudice against studio audience mm. sitcom now, and it's sort of seen as unfashionable. Whereas actually, I I love it as a medium, and I love the chemistry that if you to watch David timing a joke off a studio audience is one of the great pleasures. Or you know, well, everyone in that cast mm. is is mm. fantastic at riding a laugh off some real people there watching the performance happen in front mm. of them, and. I think if you if you watched, you know, we had a, we used to get complaints from people saying, "Why have you got this canned laughter?" Which I mean, mm. don't, yes. I don't get covered this. Let's not go there. Um, yeah. And wouldn't it be better if there wasn't laughter on it? But actually, David said, and he was absolutely right about this. Imagine what those performances would look like if there wasn't an audience laughing. Everyone would be looking like they were massively over the top. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's those performances and the, and the writing and everything yes. is gauged yeah. to be a studio audience sitcom. Yeah. You know, everything about it. What, it yeah, I think what the, the, the good thing about it is, is and, and you know, we keep being told the audience sitcom is dead and unfashionable or what, all these other things, but it, it, it sort of... T- it still feels like, well, the way that we, the, the only way that we can do audience sitcom is for it to be in a sort of artificial uh, way, in mm. almost Shakespearean way, yeah. watching a play within a play. And it's, uh, we are watching an audience watching Shakespeare, and there's the rhythm of the, the, yeah. the lines as well. And so um, that sort of seems to be one of the few ways that you can actually get audience sitcom made do you think do you think the days of the sort of audience sitcoms that we grew up with do you think it's possible for those sort of porridge or that, that those oh, shows I hope that so. are, I'm going to keep yeah. on mm. pushing are you, away you, you are champion you are yeah, our champion absolutely. at the BBC for the audience sitcom yeah totally good yeah but is it your I, I remember we had a conversation much along the lines of what you just said that you know thinking it's a, it's a stagey medium about mm. the stage, mm. and so that fits terribly well for yeah. Upstart Crow, for exactly the reasons you say. You know, yeah. it's it's. Mm. Um, but it, it feels like though somehow you need to cheat, as in you need to break the fourth wall in some way. So yours is a stagey show about a stage hero. Yeah. And Miss, uh, Mrs. Brown is yeah. pantomime. Yeah. You know, and a cross-dressing. Yeah. You know. Dead. In fact, in the pilot of Upstart. Crow, the first, um, there was a non-broadcast pilot. Uh, at the end, the camera pulls out wide, and the the cast all dance on the set in a Shakespearean mm. sort of way, and the camera mm. pulls out wide so that it shoots off, and yeah. you can see the studio audience as well. And it was rather nice. I thought it was quite an eloquent and yeah. very very Shakespearean way of saying we can now step out all of the, the reality. Stage. That we've, huh. that we've well, yeah, yeah exactly. all the world's a studio. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you didn't. But that we didn't keep that in. No. I think we then feels like got, a misstep to me. It feels like you don't need. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah, exactly. Because yeah. you've you've worked hard to create the art of your own version well, of the artifice. Well, it's like that. It's that thing about Brechtian theatre. Really, you, you, you know, you don't. In a way, it's sort of slightly insulting to say to people, "Ah, oh, but you do realise you're watching a play," and they're kind of going. <laughs> Well, yes, yes, I mean... Yeah, yeah. We assume that you know, this is... Been intense. sitting in this uncomfortable chair for yeah. 90 minutes. <laughs> Have you well, seen the I price am. of the drinks in the interval? Yeah. Of course I know I'm watching a play. Yeah. <laughs> Made that very clear. Because we, um, when we were doing um, Bluestone 4-2, we were put under quite a lot of pressure to have, oh, 
a backstage, um, you know, sort of how it's made kind of stuff. And Richard and I were just like, we don't want any of that. Yeah. We don't want any of that because we're working, we're going all the way to South Africa to film a show to make it look like Afghanistan and to make these actors look like mm. soldiers. We're doing absolutely everything we can to create the artifice. Why would we undermine that with, mm. of course, yeah. I'm not really a soldier, love. I'm an actor. It's just like, <laughs> don't, yeah. don't do that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so we yeah. scripted some, some non, some, some like, you know, Scotty's relaxing kind of stuff instead because we had to do something. Yeah. But actually, you have to work, you have to know what the rules are of your world, don't you? And therefore, uh, and sort of commit to them and believe in them, invite the audience because, and they are, they, they know, they mm. know it's not yeah. real, but yeah. they want to believe it's real. Yeah. yeah. If and, you let yeah. them. That's exactly what David Jason says. Well, there you go. Jason. Well, in that case... Um, if it's good enough he, for David Jason. If it's good enough for David Jason, yeah. it's good enough for me. Well, speaking of which, let's finish with talking about um, that guy. Yeah. Very much a, a, a godfather of, of comedy. Mm. What have you learnt from working with him in terms of how he approached scripts, how he goes about his work being a comedy legend? What mm. have you learn from that this was this was doing uh the open still open so i've worked with yeah. david a lot now and uh, we also did a radio sketch series because i mean one of the one of the first things that david and i bonded over was that we both love radio sketch comedy and mm. you know just love mm. talking he, he about was, it he was on was, weekending when i used to write was, for it yeah he was the uh, actor in it. and and i think you know, he absolutely loves creating a character and he can do all of the goon voices. We did, in this mm. sketch show that David Rennick wrote uh, called Desolation Jests that we did a couple oh, of years yes. ago, mm -hmm. there was a pastiche of the goon show in it. And we had Rory Bremner was in the cast and David Jason and we had to, and they needed to do the voices of sort of quasi goons. And there was a blue bottle character and David did his... Uh, Rory did his blue bottle voice and David did his blue bottle voice and Rory went David's is better <laughs> and then they did blue bottle and uh, Rory went yeah David's is better actually wow. and just went through all of the characters and Rory was just going yeah, yeah alright okay, right. <laughs> uh, yeah wow. both incredibly nice people to work with uh, yeah. uh, um, I should add but yeah um, David the only time I've heard David be annoyed about something was when he thought somebody wasn't part, part adding to the ensemble right. atmosphere and he really understands the collaborative mm. nature of comedy and the importance of having a, a funny atmosphere you know that you want you want to be and I think producing is a lot of producing comes down to this of making a space in which it's okay for mm. comedy to happen. Yeah. And if people are feeling uncomfortable or cross or, or self conscious or frightened mm. or self conscious or under threat, it makes it much harder to be funny. It's not impossible and there are funny things that are being made when people were having a horrible time. But uh, it re I personally believe it's it doesn't help at all and the only way that I've ever mm. known how to produce is to create a really supportive mm. protective environment for the for the jokes yeah. mm -hmm. and the star of the show really does yeah. set the tone yeah they? completely mm -hmm. um, when I worked with uh, on uh, My Hero with Ardlo Handlon 
Ardley's just the nicest, most professional and super intelligent guy mm. you could hope to meet. And it just meant that everyone behaved and, and did the, you know, yeah. learnt their lines, didn't make a fuss. And we, we all knew that this show was only on television because Ardlow Handel wanted to do it. Yeah. You know, Father Dougal was doing a mainstream sitcom, mm. and so we were all very grateful. Um, but he was like the quarterback, team captain, yeah. just create, you know what I mean? It just yeah. felt like, and that, that it is great when a, when, a, when a star really is and does all the things yeah. you would hope they would do and be. Yeah, and, and it makes a huge difference. I, I worked on the Lenny Henry 60th birthday show, mm. and we were doing a pastiche of This Is America, which uh, Very funny. I think is, is an amazingly beautifully made pastiche. But Brilliant. watching Lenny on set there, was, mm. you know, it was a huge, complicated set, and he had to remember a dance and lyrics and all kinds of stuff. And he's absolutely the the team leader mm. in terms of just yeah. not in a pushy way, but yeah. I just mean he's he's saying to okay, right, everyone, yeah. let's do this. Really, there, yeah. not just mm. as a performer, but as a uh, as a leader of, yeah. uh, of the creative process, Tracy, yeah, I find him one of the most sort of giving people. Yeah, when, mm. even though it's all the Lenny Henry show, when you ever work with him on anything, it's always he, he's always enabling. Yeah. everyone. As soon as he walks, that's in a beautiful word, and that's exactly right. I think, I think good. The, a good environment comes when everyone is trying to enable each other to do their best work. Yeah, mm. and that's. It's so nice being in that space, and when it's you know, the point is making comedy is really really difficult, and making TV comedy is especially difficult because there's, uh, there's an almost infinite number of ways in which it can go wrong. Yeah. And I think studio comedy is even harder again mm -hmm. because you're trying to create a show in the room, yeah. which then you yeah. have to enjoy yeah. at home, and so that I mean that's something hard on stilts, isn't it? I mean that really yeah. is, and. Uh, when you we spoke to Stephen Moffat uh, recently, and eventually we got to talk about chalk, <laughs> which is there's that great line that Stephen said when he created Sherlock, um, which was thank goodness I'm no longer the guy that wrote chalk. <laughs> um, and um, but yeah, sometimes but everyone involved in that show thought this was a huge hit, and a second series was commissioned off the off yeah. the first off the, off the reaction first. And we spoke yeah. to Pete Sinclair oh, um, about Mr. Charity yeah. as well, yeah. and he just said it was the biggest audience reaction he's he's, he's ever seen. Yeah. Um, but you know, do you have any ideas about why things just don't come through the glass uh, at home? Have you had that sort of? Oh experience? yeah, I mean we've all had that experience, and you know the the sad thing is. You know, I, I often think about a sitcom pilot we made at London Weekend, which Andy Riley and Kevin Cecil wrote mm. about um, an alien <laughs> running a pub. <laughs> and I think it was a great idea, and the script was incredibly good, and it didn't. You know, we we couldn't get it to work. And I and I was a, a, you know pretty new to producing, and I mm. certainly made lots of mistakes on it. Um. But the difficult thing is that you learn more from your mistakes than you do from getting it right. So mm. every now and again, I, I sort of, yeah. That's why we only ever, we, we only ever really want to talk about failure. Yeah. So the whole time yeah. we were talking to Stephen Moffat, we were just thinking, had had we going to talk about your, <laughs> <laughs> um, which and we got there eventually. But again, he said, what the for him the frustrating thing was on chalk. He did everything that he did on coupling and joking apart, and it just didn't just didn't work. Yeah, and there's that. Ultimately, it is a, it is a black art, isn't it? Really? Yeah, yeah. It might not work. 
Yeah. Mm. That's what's interesting about comedy. Yeah. <laughs> and nobody know. knows why. Yeah. Nobody knows why. Yeah, something right. sort of slightly magical about the whole That bread process. didn't rise. Do you know why? Yeah. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, what do you do? Make another one. Oh. Yeah. Have you heard that fantastic thing? I think it's in um, The Tipping Point or, you know, one of those. Mm, yeah, yeah. About, and they're talking about making pots. Uh, and they have two groups of people who are all novice potters. And they say to one of them, at the end of the week, we're going to judge you on the best pot you can possibly make. And they said to the other group, we're going to judge you on the number of pots that you can make. And the group that has to do one pot, it, you know, they work really, really hard making this yeah. exquisite pot. And at the end of the week, it turns out it's, it's not that bad. Yeah. Uh, and then they get the group whose job it was to make as many pots as they possibly could. And they've made 300 pots. Mm. And, you know, 250 of them are absolutely crap and maybe the ones they made towards the end of the week it's about 40 of them that are perfectly good and then there's yeah. another five that are really not that bad and then there's two or three that are superb yeah, yeah. because they've just made a hell of a lot of pots yeah and there's no point being precious you sort of just have to keep going and yeah. and you know make make more bread mm. make more pots stay this on the bus this is the stay argument on the bus. Yeah. Yeah. stay on this the is bus this is what I always say about the BBC you know the problem with there not being enough uh, yeah. sitcom audience sitcoms is make more audience sitcoms yeah yeah, yeah simple exactly. yeah. I mean I know yeah. well it's, it's, funny, the, but it's the, great myth, we, the yeah. great myth of the golden age of television mm. you know in the, the past has got porridge and dad's army and step yeah. two and son and these days we've only got Mrs. Brown's boys. What's going on? You go, well, that's because the past <laughs> is, say, 50 years. And yeah. right now is... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right now, yeah. there's not very much of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think also that there is a... Because, but because there was a culture of just churning out sitcoms, and plenty of them were, yeah. weren't that great. Yeah, exactly. But plenty of them were fine. Yeah. And fine and, sitcoms and, were, yeah. were good yeah. enough for me. Um but when when you watch those, and I've tried to stop watching them now, programs like Comedy Connections, where they tell you how mm. how Birds of a Feather came together yeah. or how um, the good life happened, and they sort of go, well, Sidney Lotterby had worked with so-and-so on this sitcom yeah. that you've never heard of. Uh, the writer who had previously written this also did a stage play with That's so-and-so, right. yeah. a show that you've never heard of. And there are sort of usually three or four unseen and forgotten ingredients that were yeah. either passable or bad. Mm. Um, but it was 1968, so no one really cared so much. You know, such an overinflated view <laughs> of television that we have now. Um, and also, they weren't comparing it to Netflix, where they spend a million pounds yeah. on an episode of everything. So, um, so, 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 I think that's my main worry: is that the volume, the the the, the, the less that is made, the more pressure right. there is on it. But also, the, the yeah. less mistakes yeah. that can be made publicly from mm, which a yes. phoenix can rise from the ashes well again that's why sketch shows are so great yeah because you can you know you can mm. you can actually afford to throw some sketches away yes you used to be able to yeah, yeah. yeah. but that's also that that the, the culture was you know there were these there, there were writers comedy writers and they wrote stage shows and they the people who were in those stage shows were in sort of rep theaters and they they wrote for telly as well and these rep theatre people were telly people and so you had this sort of culture of people who were in and out of writing for live 
writing mm. for audiences mm. coming into telly and writing for audiences and you had these performers this whole like, all the mm. all the actors would were, were working uh, for yeah. two weeks a year but then, you know this we shouldn't get too downcast about it because now there's 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 much more comedy around yeah. it's yeah. just not 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 necessarily on the BBC but yes. and, yeah. Not, yeah. and certainly not audience comedy mm. but there's a lot mm. of comedy being made and there's a lot on you know, yeah. social media you know there are there are new places where yeah. people can can yeah. learn there which is why making it yourself if you can as it were um, gets you into a mindset of what shall I write about this week yeah yeah um, because I think occasionally I worry that um, people who are trying to break into writing are basically polishing one script and polishing it and polishing yeah. it and polishing it and actually that's, that's the pot the pot isn't it yeah and actually yeah well, that's the one pot <coughs> the isn't one it? pot that they're, they're working well, it's actually yeah. make 300 pots yeah yeah and yeah which slightly goes against what we've said in the past I think isn't it about you know just churn it all out and don't wor- don't worry if your script's not quite as good when you send it off to the well, writer's room well it's difficult yeah. you want to go through you know two or three yeah drafts of yeah. it perhaps but well make but the 300 it, yeah. and pick yeah. your best five and then make and then polish them you know it's yeah. that kind of approach mm. isn't it rather yeah. than just yeah. have Look your for... one calling card script that's going to open every door for you and set you on a path to a career that's not how it works no exactly mm. because yeah. and, and um, I'd imagine you've possibly worked given how much experience you've got that you've that you've ha- found a pilot script or you've worked with someone and they've actually not really been able to deliver six more scripts necessarily or that actually coming up with a volume is really hard yeah that is it's a different skill that yeah. isn't it and, and and actually the whole history of british comedy is full of that you know mm. there's not very many episodes of faulty towers yeah because that was all they wanted to Right, I sure, suppose, but also know, they so. kind of got divorced, didn't they? <laughs> kind of made it a bit harder. Well, there you go. But, you know, I wouldn't you think know, you want to write a sitcom like X, Y. No, but typically, yeah. and I'm, I'm sure you know, this is the point that gets made a lot, but if it were America, someone would have said, OK, well, we'll get a different showrunner on yeah. and we'll do yeah. 12 mm. more series. And, you know, it's a mm. bit like... Um, I like esoteric comparisons. Uh, when when the Turing bomb was made in wow in, uh, in Bletchley Park yeah I think they had what did they have two of them and you, you know more you than I would James but I, I do but, know about it yes yeah. but I'm, I'm interested to see okay. where this goes so they had a, an agreement that they'd share technology with uh, the Americans mm. and so they eventually showed them how the Turing bomb was made. Uh, bomb as it, which was a B O M B E, which a, is a computer um, machine, uh, uh, yes, a exactly. number cruncher. Yeah. Uh, and they showed it to the Americans, and they went, "Oh, that's really impressive! How fantastic!" And then next time they talked to them, they'd built a room with fifty of them in. <laughs> uh, and you go, "Oh, okay, you know what? We just don't. There's a, there's a cottage industry mentality yeah. Yeah. That, that besets some of British industry, including yeah. the comedy industry, mm. that." You know, everything has to be finely crafted by an auteur, yeah, rather than cranked up and made into you know three hundred episodes of Mash. Yeah, mm. but we did. There's been a kind of cross fertilization though. I mean, we did try at the same time that we were trying with shows like My Family. Yeah. To to deliver the American way. Meanwhile, in America, they've become much more. Okay, with the sort of British way. That's and a really good point. And they do ten, ten, se- yeah. ten episodes in a series yeah. of something. That like, HBO, like yeah. Curb Your Enthusiasm or something. And, yeah. and uh, 
is it simply that there's no money? Is that why BBC don't do more my family type shows now, or is, is it just? I don't know the answer to that. I think you know everyone would love to be able to do it, and I think I think the problem is that you you can't just try it once or twice. You probably have to try it. Mm. You know, you have to make more pots. Yeah. So. It, you know, it, my family was a success at doing a British team written sitcom, and lots of impressive writers learnt quite a lot working on it. Mm. And then nothing else came up that allowed them to utilise mm. those skills to repeat the success. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if we followed it up with, uh, you know, the, the sort of real McCoy example of just going, okay, we need another team written sitcom give us your three best ideas because we've got 24 weeks we have to fill next year with whichever one is the best one of those and it's definitely happening yeah that would be the mother of invention i think and you you, you, but you might end up with something awful yeah Mm -hmm. it literally might not work yes but then again another one might Yeah. yeah Great. Um, okay. I feel like we've <coughs> gone in and out of pots quite several times there in a way that I think that is hopefully very educative and esoteric. As mm-hmm. you said. Thank you so much for not only um, being on this podcast, but being able to book us a room at the BBC, which is not as easy. Yeah, that's hard. That's hard. Yeah. Yeah. Making a comedy. Yeah. Making comedy is a piece of cake. Yes, exactly. That. Well done for saying cake. Thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, thank you very much, Gareth. Um, thanks for listening, everybody, and speak to you thank next you. time. Thanks, bye. Bye.